From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. Good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Loose Hall, the home of the Center of Theological Inquiry. My name is William Storer, and as the director of the Center of Theological Inquiry, uh, I'm honored to host our annual William Witherspoon Lecture in Theology and the Natural Sciences. William Witherspoon was a distinguished, accomplished businessman uh, from St. Louis in Missouri, and he had a particular interest in the relationship between theology and science. Along with his brother, Houston Witherspoon, William um, endowed a lectureship and a fellowship here at the Center of Theological Inquiry. So we're very uh, honored to have the the support of the late uh, Witherspoon brothers. William endowed this lectureship, and Houston endowed a fellowship for a visiting research scholar in theology and science. And it's wonderful that we can hold this lecture this evening at a time when we are conducting a remarkable interdisciplinary inquiry on the societal implications of astrobiology uh, with support from the NASA Astrobiology Program and from the John Templeton Foundation, which we gratefully acknowledge this evening. But tonight is an occasion to honor the memory of William Witherspoon and the lectureship in theology and the natural sciences that he endowed. And our distinguished lecturer this evening uh, would have made uh, uh, the late William Witherspoon very proud because we have a fellow Presbyterian, uh, William Brown, who is the William Marcellus McFeeters Professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. And we're also very proud to say a member of the Center of Theological Inquiry of some years standing, and this year, in 2015-16, a CTI Research Fellow in our inquiry in uh, the societal implications of astrobiology. Bill Brown is an accomplished Old Testament scholar who has had a particular interest in wisdom literature and in the relationship between theology, scripture, and science. His book, The Seven Pillars of Creation, The Bible, Science, and the Ecology of Wonder, published by Oxford University Press, is a landmark volume bringing the study of ancient biblical texts into dialogue with contemporary science. Bill is also a leader of the Science for Ministry program at Columbia Theological Seminary. So there could be no more fitting um, lecturer this year in this program than our distinguished William Witherspoon lecturer this evening. Please welcome him now. Thank you. Thank you, Will. Biologist and self-declared natural, religious naturalist Ursula Goodenough tells of her experience when she was viewing the night sky on a camping trip one evening after having taken an astronomy class in college. And this is what she says. Before I could look around for Orion and the Big Dipper, I was overwhelmed with terror. The panic became so acute that I had to roll over and bury my face in my pillow. The night sky was ruined. I wallowed in its poignant nihilism. 
A bleak emptiness overtook me whenever I thought what was really going on out in the cosmos. Well, after spending these last several months studying astrobiology and what possibly could be going on out in the cosmos, it would be fair of you to ask me whether I look at the night sky any differently now. Do I view the cosmos with a new found sense of terror as I lift my eyes to the heavens? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> but first, a word of thanks. I, too, would like to acknowledge with gratitude the legacy of William Witherspoon, who probably should not be confused with the linebacker from the St. Louis Rams. <clears throat> but they both come from St. Louis. Uh, and who knows, they may have been um, related as well. But uh, the accomplished Presbyterian businessman from St. Louis who made possible this lectureship on theology and the natural sciences at CTI, I am very grateful for. But I also want to thank some living people, including Dr. Will Storer, director of the Center of Theological Inquiry, for the invitation to speak tonight. Thanks as well to my dear colleagues at the Center this year, Drs. Ulrika Alga, Fred Simmons, Anne-Marie Reinen, Neil Arner, Andrea Vicini, William Werpachowski, Judith Gundry, Lucas Mix, Dominique Styler, Susan Schneider, Robin Lovin, and Joshua Malden, from whom, from all of whom, I've learned much and have enjoyed many a stimulating conversation and collaborative work these past several months. It is an honor to be counted not only as a colleague, but also as a friend among you. This lecture could not have been developed without your help, dear colleagues. Thanks also to Mary Wojtek, Senior Scientist for Astrobiology at NASA, for making this research program possible at CTI, along with the John Templeton Foundation. And finally, thanks to all of you from Princeton Seminary, from the larger community, who simply have showed up tonight wondering what in the world is going to happen. Um, on this pleasant spring evening in Princeton, thanks be to God, and I know what you're giving up tonight. Once again, another Republican debate. <laughs> Just let me tell you, I don't take that for granted. Thank you for showing up. So now back to panic and politics. I mean panic in the cosmos. <laughs> now it would be an understatement to say that science has demonstrated that the cosmos is not as cozy as once thought. Let me recount briefly three revolutions in science that over time has, have significantly changed and expanded our view of life and the cosmos. First, the Copernican Revolution, which debunked the view that the Earth is stationary and located at the center of the solar system. The Darwinian Revolution, which theorized the descent of life with modification from a common ancestral background made possible by natural selection, resulting in a plethora of diverse species adapting to their respective environments. After Darwin, we can no longer think of ourselves as an independent species. We are instead an emergent species, one of 8.7 million species estimated to be on this planet all traceable to a so-called last universal common ancestor, or LUCA. Not to be confused with Lucas. 
And there we are. Let's see if I can. There we are. There we are, right there. There we are, amid the vast diversity of life on earth. And it's clear, this is no towering tree of life. And then there's what I call the Shapley-Hubble revolution. Edwin Hubble is known for demonstrating the existence of other galaxies. His measurements of the Doppler shift, moreover, demonstrated that galaxies are receding from the Earth with a velocity proportional to their distance from the Earth. This observation, known as Hubble's Law, constituted the first observational basis for the expansion of the universe. But I also want to include Harlow Shapley, the lesser-known astronomer, because Shapley was the first to realize that the Milky Way galaxy is much larger than was commonly thought at the time, and that the sun's place in the galaxy is in a relatively peripheral location. Ironically, Shapley fiercely opposed Hubble's observations that there are galaxies other than the Milky Way out there. In fact, he even condemned Hubble's work as junk science. But when Shapley received a letter showing Hubble's observed light curve of a Cepheid variable star in galaxy M31, he reportedly told a colleague, quote, here is the letter that destroyed my universe. From then on, Shapley was an avid supporter of Hubble's work. So here's a new image of the cosmos, thanks to Hubble and Shapley. <laughs> no, that's not it. <laughs> that snuck in there from the Whitney Museum. <laughs> it's uh, this one. Here we are. This is a deep field photograph thanks to the Hubble Space Telescope. And I ask you, how many stars do you see here? Can you count them? I see only two. The rest are galaxies in this deep field photograph. And this portion of the sky is smaller than your fingernail stretched out at arm's length. So just a fraction of the night sky. So here are three revolutions in the physical sciences that have reoriented the way we look at life and the universe today. And I haven't even mentioned Einstein. Each one displaces the once cherished position of the human species as independently unique and physically central to the universe. We are, it turns out, evolutionary latecomers, or as Dr. Schneider likes to say, galactic babies, as we inhabit our pale blue dot in an ordinary galaxy of at least 100 billion stars in a universe populated by at least 10 billion galaxies. And that's just in the visible universe. So is there a fourth revolution at hand? That remains to be seen. But in the meantime, it is safe to say that astrobiology proposes a new layer of complexity to the universe as we know it, for it entertains the possibility of life elsewhere beyond Earth. Simply put, astrobiology is the study of life from a cosmic perspective. It is the most far-reaching of the sciences and the most interdisciplinary, as it draws from astronomy, geology, chemistry, biology, not to mention a host of technological expertises. Throw in some philosophers, theologians, and ethicists, and even a couple of biblical scholars, 
and the interdisciplinary complexity increases significantly. <laughs> Here we are. We've been, we've been studying together these several months. What I have found unique about astrobiology among the sciences is that it invites us to look at the big picture of the cosmos while also beckoning us to examine life down to its most fundamental constituents. This looking both upward and downward, or outward and inward, or macro and micro, testifies to astrobiology's comprehensive and integrative scope. I like to think of astrobiology as the new queen of the sciences, even as it remains in search of its subject matter, holy grail of exoplanetary life. In this way, astrobiology might share some resonance with a certain former queen of the sciences, theology. <laughs> While theology, or at least a certain stream of theology, is in search of the deus absconditus, the hidden god, or God's elusive presence, to quote the great Old Testament theologian Samuel Terrian, then if what if theology is about in search of the deus absconditus, then astrobiology is in search of the vita abscondita, the hidden life, life as we do not know it. As such, this new science has a strong hermeneutical component that raises questions about how to recognize life as we do not know it, about how to recognize it and to read it meaningfully. To prepare for the discovery of life elsewhere in the universe, astrobiology invites us to consider alternative pathways to life, both metabolic and evolutionary. Call them biological thought experiments. Can there be such a thing as silicon-based life? Can liquid methane serve as a medium for life? What might life look like in such strange settings? How weird or alien can life get and remain recognizable as life? Astrobiologists have their own quite varied suspicions and hopes, but they all might agree with J.B.S. Haldane, the great evolutionary biologist of the early last century, who said, quote, Now, my own suspicion is that the universe is not only queerer than we suppose, but queerer than we can suppose. Astrobiology, in short, is in search of the strange. And that is my desperate segue to the Bible, <laughs> specifically the, the strange new world within the Bible, to quote Karl Barth. Yes, William. I am no scientist. Rather, I'm a biblical scholar, so I'm keenly interested in how the Bible is read. We invariably read the Bible through a variety of interlocking lenses, cultural, social, economic, theological, and personal. But in addition to the influences that bear upon each of us as readers of ancient texts, I take up the task of reading the Bible through one more lens, the lens of astrobiology, a cosmic perspective. If the astrobiologist asks what life might look like, life that we do not currently know, then I ask what might the biblical text look like some of whose meanings we may have yet to grasp through the lens of astrobiology. To be more specific, how does one read the biblical text knowing that the earth 
is not the center of the universe, that creation extends far beyond our sight and imagination, that the cosmos is as much a process as a place, and that the universe is full of surprises. First and foremost, I can say that for me, astrobiology directs my attention to particular biblical texts that stress the cosmic extent of creation and the cosmic scope of divine activity. God, the creator of all, is cosmic. Christ, in whom all things were made, is cosmic. The spirit, which hovered over the face of the deep, is cosmic. With the help of the natural sciences, we can now talk about the God of deep time and deep space, the God of possibly multiple genesis, the God of galactic gardens. We might even be able to talk of God's preferential option for life itself. And so I ask, is there a text in the Bible that comes close to adopting such a cosmically sublime perspective? I submit to you the book of Job. The book of Job is itself something of a thought experiment. Job, the book of Job is filled with what-if questions about human integrity, divine intention, and the nature of the universe. What if the paragon of righteousness were to fall into unimaginable ruin? What if piety were something other than the basis for reward and blessing? What if God were no protector of the righteous? What if the universe was utterly indifferent to human plight and concern? What if humanity is not one of the great acts of God? The book of Job is filled with such wonderings. And as a climax to this tale of trauma, God's speeches present the most panoramic and poetic view of creation in all of the Hebrew Bible. And not coincidentally, it offers the closest thing to an astrobiological perspective in Scripture. God's answer does more than simply put Job in his place, decentering him into seeming insignificance. God unveils the wonders of the cosmic world, revealing the unfathomable depth and diversity of creation. Through the power of poetry, God transports Job to a world far beyond his kin. The earth's foundations, the singing stars, the swaddled sea, the gates of deep darkness, the storehouses of hail, the dwelling place of light, flowing channels in the desert, all beyond human reach and imagination. There is moreover a direction to the presentation of, that is distinctly anti-creational. For you see, God's answer to Job begins with the earth's foundations and ends with the watery abyss. Leviathan's abode. It is a journey into a sublime chaos. Immanuel Kant writes that, quote, it is in its chaos that nature most arouses our ideas of the sublime, or in its wildest and mo most ruleless disarray and devastation, provided that it displays magnitude and might. Cosmos, according to God and Job, certainly exceeds Job's capacity to comprehend the magnitude of creation and the unmatchable, unmatchable might of God. 
God's answer takes Job into the cosmic sublime. And after describing the vastness of creation, God provides a sample taxonomy of creation's zoological diversity. God shows Job a host of animals, lion and raven, mountain goat and deer, wild ass and ox, ostrich and warhorse, hawk and vulture, behemoth and leviathan. There we go. Six pairs total. Each animal, God proudly points out, exercises its own strength and embodies its own dignity. They are not, it turns out, scavengers warranting contempt, but creatures eliciting admiration, each one holding its rightful place in creation. Put broadly, God reveals to Job that life is larger than life as he knows it. As much as the universe is larger than the world as Job sees it. In view of its extremes, the cosmos is revealed as utterly unheimlich, that is, utterly alien, utterly sublime. And as a result, Job suffers displacement of the most unimaginable kind. He is already an outcast in his community. and Now he is a castaway in the cosmos, so it seems. His ash heap is but a pale blue dot in a whirling, swirling cosmos. Job, it turns out, is sort of an anti-Adam type. Unlike Adam, to whom God brought the animals to be named in the garden, Job is poetically transported out of his world to where the wild things are, to learn their names and their ways of life, their habits and their habitats. God asks Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? You see, that's not the question that Job expects from God. What Job expects is God to challenge him to kill the lion. But Job, but God does not challenge Job to kill the lion as if to test his physical prowess in the face of predatory danger. Rather, God challenges Job to imagine himself providing for the lion as if to test the extent of his care and compassion. You see, such a question turns Job's own world upside down. In God's kingdom, Job is asked not to be the lion hunter, not even the lion tamer, but the lion's provider. Job's zoological tour begins with the lion and ends with Leviathan, whose abode is none other than the deep. It is as if God plunges Job into the watery abyss, to bring him up close and personal to this magnificent chaos monster, close enough even to examine how tight its scales are fastened together. This is Leviathan, king over all that are proud. Now, remarkably, there is no talk in God's answer to Job of exercising dominion over these alien creatures. Instead, there is talk of freedom, vitality, strength, and fearlessness for these varied life forms. God proudly displays them, inviting Job to admire each one of them, to be aghast and astonished by them. 
Does God swell with pride in showing off these creatures? Perhaps. As God was eager to show off Job to the Satan in the prologue, praising Job's pious integrity, so now God praises these creatures before Job's eyes. God the biophile, a creator who delights in all these creatures who live and move and have their being in God as God intended. Free and fearless. Each creature is an alien endowed with inalienable dignity for whom God is their provider. God describes each one in loving detail. And with such detail, Job is offered a point of view beyond himself, a perspective that is God's perspective, and also the one that the animals share as well. You see, Job is invited to see the looming battle through the lens of the fearless warhorse, to spy out corpses through the eyes of the hungry vulture, to roar for prey as the lion, to cry for food like the raven's brood, to roam free on the vast plains with the onager, to laugh at the horse and its rider like the ostrich, to play in the high mountains with the goats, and perhaps even to swim in the deep with Leviathan. I wonder whether through this cosmic zoological tour, I wonder what God, that God is inviting Job to reimagine himself for one brief moment as the figure of Enkidu in the Gilgamesh epic, that wild man who once roamed with the wild herds before becoming civilized to become the counterpart to Gilgamesh, the famed king of Uruk. But that's a whole other story. In any event, Job is challenged to share not only God's perspective of creation, but the perspectives of the wild in creation, the wisdom of the wild. To sum up, what God does is bring the periphery of Job's world into the center, reorienting Job's world, turning it not so much inside out, but outside in. And one particularly reorienting passage is Job 38, verses 25 to 27. Who has cut a channel for the downpours and a way for the thunderbolts to bring rain upon a no man's land, upon an uninhabitable desert, to satisfy the desolate wasteland and to bring forth grass growth? The desert, a no man's land, uninhabitable in the eyes of Job, but in God's eyes, bringing forth grass. God perhaps could have added these words for more modern readers. Who has made the comet's gaseous tail and cut away for the watery plumes of Enceladus to provide an icy ring for Saturn? Who brings the rains of liquid methane to fill Titan's lakes and deltas? Who keeps Europa's ocean warm and active, swaddled under its icy surface, preserving the threshold of life? Or so one could imagine. God's answer turns the cosmos into something wholly other, ganz andere, to borrow from Rudolf Otto, a mysterium that verges on the monstrous, thanks particularly to Behemoth and Leviathan, 
near theriomorphic theophanies in their own right. God's answer to Job yields the Bible's most sublime presentation of, quote, creation's self-revelation, as Gerhard von Rad once described biblical wisdom. And that revelation leaves Job with an overwhelming sense of awe and wonder, as found in Job's final words. I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Wonder, awe, but there is more. Job's final words highlight another existential outcome of his cosmic tour. Therefore, I relent and am comforted on dust and ashes. Now, this translation differs significantly from what is typically given in standard translations. You probably know the NRSV translation, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It is the second clause of in Job's confession that I find most intriguing. Fundamentally, the verb, nacham in Hebrew, denotes a change of heart and can, can exhibit a wide range of meaning from, quote, being sorry to being comforted. In Job, however, this verb consistently conveys a rather narrow meaning. It occurs six other times in the book of Job, and always with a sense of comfort. It is a prominent theme, comfort is, throughout the book of Job. And so the question arises, a question that really has not been sufficiently explored by us biblical scholars. How is it that God's answer in the end comforts Job in his anguish, succeeding where Job's friends have failed. Job's repentance was an issue only for his friends, never for Job, and not for God. In fact, repentance is rendered irrelevant in the book of Job, for Job is vindicated by God in the very next verse. What is rendered relevant in Job's final testimony is his comfort. Upon the ash heap, before the sublime sweep of the cosmos and life's alien diversity, in the throw of wonder and awe, Job has somehow found solace in his state of desolation, in his state of displacement and decenteredness, on his heap of dust and ashes. Now this verse, verse 6 of chapter 42, is admittedly the crux of the entire book of Job. And the translation proposed here only deepens the enigma. It is commonly assumed that Job finds no comfort at all in God's answer. Indeed, how could he, since his suffering is left unaddressed by God? Lacking in God's response is any acknowledgement of Job's suffering, much less any explanation for it. In other words, this seems merely cold comfort at best. But the translation stands exegetically, I submit. Therefore, one has to account for the fact that Job admits to finding something more than just cold comfort in his encounter with God and creation, all on his little ash heap. What then could be the connection between Job's professed state of comfort and the fierce landscapes he has encountered? God reveals to Job a cosmos that is vast and fundamentally indifferent 
to his plight, a cosmos that exists in all its bewildering otherness. Does the cosmos have that same kind of enchantment that Edward Abbey says about the desert, that it doesn't give a damn? Is this what Job finds comforting about the universe, a vast and vital cosmos that renders his anxious concerns, yes, comfortingly trivial? Such a universe might offer Job what Belden Lane calls the gift of blessed indifference. While the cosmos provides Job no answer, no response to his protest of pain, it does give him the opportunity to be drawn outside of himself. Job's experience of the cosmos, in short, is an exercise in apophatic wonder, one that elicits a self-negation, a kenosis of the ego. But is that all? I wonder. Self-canotic comfort might be all there is to assuage Job's anguish if the cosmos were characterized only by its sheer vastness or magnitude, like the desolate landscape of the Atacama Desert in Chile in which one of the largest telescopes is located. But the universe, according to Job, is far from empty. According to God's answer, there are these denizens that thrive at the margins of Job's world in inaccessible mountains and desert wastelands, gracing creation with alien and wild diversity. Although Job is ignored by the cosmos, decentered as he is, Job is not ignored by God. In one place, and in one place alone, is Job given the benefit of a direct reference. When Job is introduced to the mighty, lumbering behemoth, God has this to say about Job. Voila, behemoth, which I made with you. It is the first of the great acts of God. For all the alien otherness of creation, God tells Job that he bears a connection, a bond, perhaps, with this monster of creation. Behemoth is created by God with Job. Preposition is key, as it is in Genesis 3. In the garden, the man was with the woman. The woman was created to be with him. It is that preposition that moves the situation of not good in the garden to good. Call it the preposition of companionship. In Job's case, God has given Job a truly strange bedfellow. As the woman and the man share common substance, flesh and bone in the garden, so Job shares a bond of some sort with this monstrous creature. In God's creation, Job discovers himself to be a monster's companion, and by extension, a companion to all things wild and alien. Now, from an astrobiological perspective, it seems almost incidental that these wild creatures that populate the book of Job are all earthbound. From Job's perspective, they could just as easily exist on other planets, for they are worlds unto themselves as much as they are worlds apart from Job. If, according to E.O. Wilson, quote, each species is a small universe in itself, then the Earth is its own multiverse. I speak figuratively, of course, but in Job, God presents the world 
as richly pluriform, replete with par the parallel universes of life on earth, species that either had remained hidden to Job or had drawn his contempt. But they are all, Job discovers, connected to him in the common exercise of life, in the common bond of creaturehood. Now there's a pointed irony to all this, for you see at the nadir of his despair, Job had complained of being, quote, a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches, ostracized as he is by his friends and family. God shows Job that he is actually in good company with these contemptible creatures. Ah, the irony of it all. Job is not alone after all in his outcast state. To be a companion of jackals and ostriches, of lions and leviathans, behemoths and wildebeests is no cause for lament. It is a cause for wonder and ultimately a cause for comfort. It is among these alien creatures, not among his friends or family, not in a culture shaped by honor and shame, that Job has found an alternative community, an open and diverse cosmic community, a community of freedom. And through the mighty figure of Behemoth, Job discovers himself to be inextricably connected to all life, grasping something of the, biolog the biologist's dictum, I link Therefore, I am. Or to cast it more theologically, Job has discovered the feeling of absolute interdependence, with apologies to Schleiermacher. This, then, is the crux of the Jobin thought experiment. Job is forced to imagine himself as kin to a monster, to behemoth, the first of the great acts of God where one might expect reference to humanity's place in the order of creation or reference to cosmic wisdom, as in Proverbs 8, as the great act of God, the first of the great acts of God, one instead finds effusive descriptions of behemoth and Leviathan, two monstrously magnificent beasts that have displaced humanity's position at the top of the created order. And so we might ask, in what world are these creatures deemed the first or the greatest of God's creative acts? Certainly not in Job's world. They are creatures of another Genesis. And compared to Genesis 1, these creatures are now part of God's image too. Job, in short, has read the cosmic book of nature and finds only a footnote reference to himself. Or to use another literary analogy, God has handed Job a letter, which Job later showed his wife, saying, here is the letter that destroyed my universe. Such, one could say, was Job's baptism into nature. Job's journey begins in trauma and terror, proceeds to awe and wonder, and arrives in comfort. Job is strengthened to begin his life anew, or as Todd Linnefelt says, quote, a dose of the sublime is all one can take. After that, it's back to the farm. <laughs> but the question remains, where is this comfort? Where is the comfort in all this? Perhaps it is in Job realizing his connection 
with these wild and fearless creatures, a connection that resonates with his own yearnings for freedom, his yearning to be fully selved. Yes, Job's journey of comfort began when his friends sat with him on the ground in silence. But such a promising beginning was derailed by words that committed epistemic violence all the way around. God admittedly does not sit with Job in his travail. God does not even declare, I am with you, the kind of divine pronouncement that one might find at the heart of a salvation oracle in the Bible. The God of the whirlwind remains the God of the whirlwind in Job. So if Job does not find his comfort from a solicitous God who meets his every need, then where does he find it? It can only be in the world that God has revealed to him. It is a world cosmically queer and seductively sublime as it is that is made with So when I look up to the stars, knowing that the night sky is a portal into deep space and deep time, I admit I do not feel a tremor of terror so much as a wave of wonder washing over me. Such wonder comes from suspecting that you and I are not the only game in town when it comes to God's work in the universe. Life may very well be flourishing elsewhere, in solar systems and galaxies, yes, far, far away, struggling and thriving, competing and cooperating, learning and loving, adapting and evolving, rising and dying. But then we know this already here at home. And there is one more thing. When I lift mine eyes unto the hills and beyond them to the stars, I eventually arrive at a place of gratitude. Gratitude for this tiny bit of life I have been given. Gratitude for the life that you have been given. Grateful for the life that graces this fragile, vibrant, colorful planet in so many ways. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures, declares the psalmist. And the day may come when we can say that the cosmos, too, is full of God's creatures. Thank you.